This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 341. Thank you for joining me for this special ingredient-focused episode of the podcast, brought to you interruption-free by longtime podcast supporters, BSG. This is year number six of of BSG's support for the podcast. Super appreciate their support for bringing this podcast to you every week. Uh, As every brewer knows, BSG leads the way in the brewing industry by supplying the finest ingredients and supplies to brewers at competitive prices and they are trusted by many of the most respected brewers in the craft community. Um, Throughout today's episode, we're going to focus on ingredient innovation as it applies to the new IPA malt developed by Gambrinus, sold exclusively through uh, in North America by BSG. Um, we're going to walk through this con- uh, the process um, of creating a new malt, um, the drive behind it, the uh, the development process, the use case for it, and uh, we're going to get into how to brew with it and that creative side and sensory side and everything else. Um, joining me, Ashton Lewis. Manager of Training and Technical Support for BSG. Welcome to the podcast, Ashton. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Looking forward to it. Ashton's regular at our Brewery Accelerator Brewery Workshop events for breweries and planning. And uh, so this is a little different context for us to have a conversation. Appreciate you joining me for it. Also joining us, Ken Smith, Director of Operations for Gambrinus Malting. Welcome, Ken, from Armstrong, BC. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to diving into the process of creating this malt with you. Also joining us from the brewer's side, Blake Masoner, co-founder, head brewer for Craft Coast Beer and Tacos in Oceanside, California. Welcome, Blake. Hey, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Stoked to be on here. I'm glad we finally, we're finally finally getting to talk. Uh, Blake and I were hanging out down in Mexicali, Mexico, uh, you know, about two months ago, judging for the Copa Baja beer competition. Uh, <laughs> it's holding up a bottle of beer as we speak, Mexican beer. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk for the podcast there, but here we are now. And uh, when the opportunity came to talk about this, I was glad that we were going to get to finally put a conversation out here onto the podcast. I'm excited to talk about this new approach to IPA brewing with IPA malt uh, from Gambrinus and RAR and BSG. Um, I think the best place to start is the genesis of the idea. Um, you know, Ashton, there are lots and lots of different malts available to brewers today, unlimited ways to combine existing malts that help brewers achieve that flavor and technical performance that they're looking for uh, in, the, in the beers they're making. Given this, you know, talk to us about the thought process uh, that drove the initial idea behind it. I mean, you have to have a, a problem, right? You know, products are created to solve problems. What problem were you all trying to solve in the development of, uh, of IPA malt? Well, the, the business case for it or the, the brewery problem that we were trying to solve, keep in mind, I live in Missouri. So trends basically hit Missouri, you know, later than anywhere else in the United States. So a lot of times the trends from like California never even make it all the way inland in Missouri. So from what I understand, and Blake, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the trend with uh, IPA brewing is really kind of a people going back to West Coast style IPAs. Not not that hazies are like going away, but there's been a kind of a, a renewed emphasis on on West Coast. And the big difference now is that instead of having a West Coast IPA that has color, you know, a lot of a lot of the West Coast IPAs ten years ago 
really had a fair amount of crystal malt in them. You know, a lot of a lot of color, a lot of crystal. But today, the the brewers, particularly in Southern California, are brewing West Coast IPAs that are very very blonde. So, let's just start off with a question back to you, Blake. Is that you agree with that trend? Yeah, I mean, in San Diego, California, that's kind of our mo. You know, we've been doing that for probably San Diego's been the industry leader for as long as I've been a part of it and then well beyond my my time as a brewer so it kind of lends to the uh the warm weather and sunshine that we have all year you know you want to drink dry and crisp and light beers but full flavor spectrum and uh you know a lot of us brewers have moved away from the crystal malt trend and the colored malt specialty malt trend and it's all focused on a nice base platform and let the hops do all the speaking you know the dryness helps you you know finish the drink so that's what we're doing out here and that's that's really what the business case was on why we wanted to look at a malt for a style that's really starting to gain traction with a national focus on brewers doing this and what what we wanted to develop was a malt that that was really pale in color you know, which a lot of the uh, West Coast style IPAs these days are being brewed really with just Pilster malt, but we wanted to have a malt that had a little bit more flavor than that Pilster malt. So our the the hole in the the baseball world that we were looking to fill was something that was low color, that has a little bit of malt character, that's a little bit something extra, and it's not an overly malty malt, but it has more character than than a Pilster malt, and it doesn't have the color that you would have with like a pale ale malt or, or something like that. Yeah. I guess you could even say be even beyond West coast IPA, even within hazy IPA, that pale light color, um, is highly prized, you know, and we, you know, there are some that deep, you know, go for that deeper orangey tone, but man, you know, that, that kind of pale milky light color is, uh, you know, it, it's what consumers now expect out of, of these beers, no matter really what they are for that matter. Um, but you know, let's let, I'm curious, you know, again, because you have, other, you do have other malts like, you know, Pilsner malt that can fill in that very light color thing. You do have other flavor, more flavorful malts in the you know broader BSG portfolio, um, that can provide some of those flavor aspects. Talk to me about what, you know, how you all wanted to uh, bring these two things together, um, why combine them and, and some of the challenges uh, that have come from trying to find one malt that can kind of span these pieces? Well, before we get Ken to comment on, on some of the, the malting production levers that we can pull, you know, one, one thing that I see is interesting thing in beer is that for the longest time, I mean, I'm kind of like an old school, early 90s brewers when I got into to brewing. And when I was a, a brewing student, literally, I was kind of, I went to UC Davis and our way of brewing was basically you take baseball and then you make different colors and flavors using specialty malts. And there are a lot of terrific baseballs in the world. We happen to carry a lot of those from Germany and uh, Belgium and England and Ireland and, and Canada, the United States. And I think brewers these days are a lot more comfortable really focusing on the baseball and, and using less specialty malt. So we, we were kind of looking for a malt that would fit that the need of this style of beer, West Coast IPA, but also other light colored beers like, you know, Pilsner's or Hellas, really not a Pilsner, but maybe a, a Hellas or a, a like a Dortmund or export type beer. 
Um, and that's where, that's the idea of the malt, a single malt that has all the, the package we need for that kind of brewing. I think, you know, what you say, it's interesting. If I think about, like, we have what we call, or what you all call, you know, pale ale malt, which was driven by a prominent beer style pale ale that was a defining thing, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now, IPA, by all, you know, by any measure, is the defining beer, you know, broader family. We can't even call it a style. It's There's so many styles within this giant family of styles. Um, and, and it's taken a little while for, I mean, you know, I mean, standard two row and pale ale malt can obviously be used. And now obviously Pilsner malt and, uh, and, uh, any yeast from ale to lager yeast for at this point can also be made to, you know, used to make IPA. Um, you know, but it hasn't necessarily had a, a malt specifically designed for the style. Yeah, totally. You know, it's funny, you know, with, without naming names, I'm going to, I'm going to name a name. One of our good customers in in San Diego area that had a slogan, you know, something about fizzy yellow beer, and it, it's funny how the industry has kind of come full circle where yellow beer is is really the norm for for a lot of craft beers these days. We've kind of got away from that color, and we're now making a lot of different beer flavors, but with more color uniformity. Yeah, that fizzy yellow beer comment hasn't aged very well from what's that? <laughs> Greg, Greg yep. from Stone, right? Um, <laughs> I'll, we'll name the names there. I think everyone's familiar oh, yeah. with that quote. Uh, you know, yeah. it's uh, it's pretty ubiquitous <laughs> these points. And of course, think look at how much you know lager that they're making now too. So uh, you know, here we are. Uh, you know, if one thing you can say about craft beer is true, it's that uh, never make a uh, ultimate pronouncements because uh, every brewer who does that will ultimately find themselves at some point in the future walking something back like that. Uh, we've seen it over and over again. Well, let's talk about this. You know, I'm curious about this development process. Cause like I said, when you look at, when I look at the stats, you know, for this new IPA malt, um, you know, some of the baseline stats, they really don't look that much different, you know, per, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from your standard, you know, kind of two row or, or, uh, you know, pale malt. And so, um, you know, from a, from a kind of, uh, you know, uh, structural or functional like talk talk to me about um what then differentiates this ipa malt and what you all have gone through I, you know there's a myriad of things that you know from barley varieties that you might be using to you know the you know that express differently um you know to, to different kinds of processing approaches but i'm curious you know how you know what what are some of the truly differentiating factors in IPA malt versus you know some of some of these other somewhat similar uh, malts in the in the BSG portfolio? Well, the main difference on this is number one, this is a North American barley, or you know, it's Canadian, so or or North American. A lot of these pale or colored malts from Europe have a lot of what I would consider kind of a grassy character, which is not a negative. But you, know, you drink a German Pilsner from you know this brutal a German uh, Pilster malt, and there's an unmistakable grassy character to a lot of those uh, continental European malts. Now, like England, on the other hand, if you drink a, a, a lightly colored beer that's brewed with, with English malt or Scottish malt, they have quite a lot of flavor, and a lot of those beers have a real deep kind of biscuit, toasty character, even with light color. So, you know, that's a, a type of malt. Uh, what we're looking for is a malt that is a little bit darker than Pilsner, because that that is kind of uh, a malt that's used a lot for this style of beer. But we wanted to have a little color differentiation, so we, we set our spec a little bit higher on color, 
and Ken's got the control of the magic in the malt house where we wanted to pull some of the, the malting levers, some of the things that we can do in malting to give flavors that are kind of a little bit more of the, the toasty character that you would get from a darker malt. But, you know, darker malts in this family of, of base, similar malts would be like a Vienna, which is probably the, the next color up from a Pilsner. Then we get into like a pale ale malt, which is darker and has more flavor. And then like a Gambrinus, we have a product which is ESB malt, which is um, kind of patterned after an English English style malts for those kind of beers. So we were looking for something that was light in color, but a little bit more color than our standard um, base malts that we produce, but was more malt flavor. Ken, why don't you uh, you talk about you know some of the you know some of that development process? Um, you know, how do you go about then creating something that uh, that hits what Ashton is talking about? Captures more of that kind of you know biscuity character of English malt without some of the grassiness of some of the continental malts, um, you know, that, that keeps that light color, but also captures some of, you know, that, that flavor that you're looking for, that character in the malt itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, first it starts with an idea and Ashton and his team at, at RAR, uh, really came to us at Gambrinus with, with this idea. And so we started talking amongst our group and, uh, decided that it's probably something we could achieve. Uh, based off of the, you know, we'll call it the limited information at that time, uh, mainly color, mainly flavor and aroma. Color for us is is typically managed um, in part germination and part kiln. And so between those two, there's a balance between uh, what, what the final outcome will be. You know, one of the one of the small rules we use in, in malting is, is moisture and heat makes color. And so we want to make sure that uh, we're entering the kiln at the right moisture levels in order to achieve those colors we want while maintaining uh, the off-kiln moisture levels in the malt itself. So that takes some design and talk and, and really it comes down to in that particular thing to the maltsters every day going into the beds and taking moisture samples and figuring out how many wet passes and, and how much fan and, and airflow we need and uh, basically carrying that all the way through germination and into the, into the kiln steps. Color, I would say, even though it is impacted by the entire process, it's it's largely and mostly impacted in the killing process. So we talked about the recipes, specific recipes in the kiln and and adjusted those to hopefully kind of land us on. And I think, Ashton, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like 2.2 SRM is kind of what we're, we're targeting, which would be for us uh, higher than a Pilsner, lower than a Pale, lower than ESB. And then it comes down to the the aromas and stuff. And this is where it gets a little more magical because at the end of the day, we can test for almost every element of, of performance within a malt in a laboratory, whether it's beta-glucans, you know, cobalt value, whatever it may be. But we still need the human to get in there and taste it and smell it and, and really see if, if this is what we're trying to get at. So we really early on started with the kind of walking through the germination with, uh, with the goal of getting a darker product. And then finishing in the kiln with the goal of getting a lighter product. And then combining those two and taking it to the lab and getting our teams together, both at the RTC, through our technical center, um, our product development team, and our own staff at Gambrinus, and just tasting it, hanging out, tasting it. And we're doing blind tests, you know, writing down what we feel, how, you know, and everyone's going to have a different opinion on, on what it tastes like or what it smells like. But there's a general consensus as well. And so we made, ver you know, varying changes throughout the process, throughout the months we were developing it. 
And once we found, we'll call it uh, a result that we were excited about, uh, we, we then had to mimic it and redo it. Right. I mean, one of the things uh, that brewers expect of us doesn't matter the size of the malt house is consistency. And they're going to want, if they like it, they're going to want to make sure that they get the same thing next time. And so not, we were able to land on something we liked, uh, but now we had to recreate it and we have to re- keep recreating it. And so really it comes down to summarize that, I guess, is there is the, the malting proprietary stuff that we do with our malts and we honed in on color and taste and aroma. And then since then, once it was sort of accepted by, we'll say Ashton and his team, we needed to start reproducing that, that, that same product. So it really fa- comes down to it. Yeah. A I'm huge fascinated group by this. Like, you know, I can, I can understand brewing in a process with, with a smaller pilot system, you know, but I, do you have small pilot malt systems, uh, you know, similar to that to let you do small batches? Because otherwise, like, you know, you're talking about pretty big production equipment. Uh, you know, do you have small, uh, you know, pilot malt systems that can also, where you understand how those scale to your large systems? Um, you know, do you have ways of, of testing these small variables as they change so that you can do head-to-head testing, you know, or even test different barley varieties or what? I, I'm just talk. I'm curious about this innovation process. Um, yeah. It's just something that's new to me. That's a that's an amazing question. That's a great question. We, Gavrinus is a is arguably the smallest industrial malt house in North America. We have fairly small batch sizes to begin with, in and around 26 to 30 metric tons. When you compare that to some of our sister plants like in Shack P and Alex, it's significantly smaller. So. In a, in a in some respects, we're a, a low risk R and D site for our, and so our batch sizes are kind of test batch test sizes, anyways. But to answer your question, yes, we absolutely have that. In our, at the RTC, we have uh, like a full um, pilot malting system that we can use. We also have smaller systems. Um, Ashton, you might want to you might want to chime in on the size of those. I'm not quite sure, but they're they're fairly small in the hundreds of kilograms. And then at our site, we also have uh, a small system we can do for about five kilograms if we really want to test. But that being said, um, you know, we've been doing this a long time and we're part of the RAR family and they got 175 years of experience and, and knowledge and education. And uh, so we can actually almost go right to production with these ideas at a fairly low risk with the amount of people and the, and the huge team behind us. It, it really does lower that risk. So in this case... No, we just went full straight to to big, you know, to a 20, 29 ton uh, batch. Uh, we didn't. We were pretty confident in the what we were where we were headed, based off our experiences with the other malts that we uh, that we wouldn't, you know, be you know, quote unquote wasting a, a batch. Um, so in the end, we we kind of took that risk. We we said, hey, this is kind of what we're looking for. Let's try it out. And I think the first batch we weren't that happy with, and uh, I think the second batch we we. We honed in a little bit more on what we liked. And at that point, we started doing the bigger sensory program with all the other teams. And then since then, I think uh, it's been at least a half a dozen batches that I would call successful. And and for us, if we have to, and we've done this in the past with other products, um, not to deviate from the IPA too much, but we've done, since RAR has acquired Gambrinos, we've done a, a honey oats and a rye, and we did much smaller batches with that. Uh, we did utilize the other systems that were available to us rather than trying to dive in on such a big scale with those particular products. But this one, we just felt a lot more comfortable and confident with it because it, although it was new, it wasn't necessarily a huge deviation from what we typically do today, unlike an oat, which was brand new to our operations. And so, um, again, for us, it was, it was a, a confident stride into a new product development. 
yeah, just to you know, come in uh, from a brewer's perspective, what Ken's talking about is really it is cool. And you know, you're you're interested in that, Jamie. You know, you talk about beer a lot, but like at RAR, we have we have multiple pilot systems at RAR at the technical center. And when we get a new when there's a crop change, we do what's called micro malting. And the micro malting is literally on like 100 grams of malt. We really work small. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the, the volume, but they're very, very, very small um, batch sizes. And that's to really assess the the barley itself. You know, how is it? How does it grow? And it, it's kind of a, it's not really scalable. But then we have a, a pilot system in the RTC that is larger. That's a 150 kilogram system. So we have a three hectoliter brew house at the RTC. So with 150 kilos of malt, we can we can definitely brew you know more than a, a three hectoliter batch. But what's really interesting with what a lot of maltsters do is that just like beer, you know, you brew like say a five gallon homebrew batch, call that a, a test batch, and then you're going to scale it up to ten barrels or twenty barrels, whatever. It doesn't scale up very easily. You know, it's difficult. So there's another method that we use at RAR called we call them strainer bags. And we'll actually take like barley samples and we're, we put them in a bag, like a just think of like a mesh bag you use for home brewing, and that gets steeped in with a, a regular steep, and then the strainer bag gets manually picked up, and we put it into the germination box with, you know, a full batch size, uh, which at Shakopee is like you know 250 metric tons, which is like you know 500,000 pounds of, of barley, and these little strainer bags are in there as test. And then we take the strainer bag and put it in a kiln, and it's it's really pretty cool because we have to, you know, like Ken said, we, you know, people expect consistent product, and we, we do our our darndest, you know, year after year to to have crop transfers without you know major changes in in color and flavor and uh, modification. Oh, that's really fun! So just like a brewer would throw you know adjunct ingredients in a in a bag in a tank, you're throwing those those grains in a bag into the the main bed of uh, Oh, that's 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 cool. Uh, I have been to the the technical center in Shakopee and uh, and seen that it is a it's a very cool research facility that you guys have up there. One hundred percent. You know, is there something to the, this IPA malt in terms of uh, you know the or tell me about the barley you know varieties that go into this variety or varieties? I, I, I'm on you know I'll let you all answer that question since it's uh, that's more your expertise than mine. Is there something to that or are these uh, you know just generally you know, you know the same kinds of uh, barley varieties grown just for agronomic purposes? Uh, you know, um, you know in, the, in the same malts that, that uh, Grand Prix uses in other ways. For us at Gambrinus, we we're located in Western Canada, so we're, we're we neighbor Alberta. Alberta produces arguably some of the best uh, malting barley on the planet. Um, but primarily, what we use is Synergy, Copeland, Connect, Fraser. There's not a whole lot of different varieties uh, available to us. I, I think there there's more options in other areas of the world. But for us, it's it's more of a focus on. The varieties that will give us, they'll influence the flavor and the color development that we're looking for. So we don't necessarily commit to just a single variety. Uh, we won't mix varieties within a production, but we, you know each batch will at least be of a single variety. And uh, but we we're not necessarily married to one over another. We use the best available variety or the best available barley uh, that there is available that crop season, regardless of variety. And it sometimes changes uh, historically. We've used uh, Copeland for our Pilsners. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've used Synergy. We're seeing a lot of benefits from Synergy uh, in terms of 
uh, you know, less pests and, and other kinds of complications that we, that can arise, uh, from, you know, it's an agricultural product. So you got all kinds of things from Don and, and, and those kinds of things. So we're typically. Sure. Getting something that grows really well that also yes, doesn't exactly. require a ton of fertilizer. So you're not yep. dumping tons of nitrogen and uh, causing all sorts of other issues. Like having something that works agronomically is ultimately going to be, you know, the best thing you know, for the. Absolutely. Product. And that, and that's our primary approach to it. It, um, you know, we're lucky that the varieties that we do have access to are great varieties. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, they, they benefit our flavor profiles we're looking for and they help us achieve the colors we're looking for. And in our province in BC, there's, it's even more limited. So a lot, I would say most of our, of our grain is coming from the Alberta region. And uh, today, it would mostly be Synergy. Uh, it could change tomorrow, though. It, it's hard to say. But uh, Synergy, the last couple of years, has provided us with great yield, low proteins, and a reliable and a consistent uh, uh, variety that allows us to also be reliable and consistent. Well, you know, the, the talk about variety is interesting. You know, we're, there's some ulcers that do focus on varieties. And like Ken said, we're, that's not our focus because we do want to have crops that are really sustainable for where they're grown. And RAR has very close relationships with our growers. So um, RAR and Gambrina is being part of the same company, work together through our grower network. We have agronomists that work with our growers. So we want our growers to be successful. The other thing we've we want our growers to do is, is keep on growing malting barley because there's there's a lot of other crops that can be grown in Alberta. Um, just to put it in context, Alberta as a as a province in Canada produces more malting barley than all of the United States combined. So Alberta is a huge, um, for North America, very, very important province. And we, we want those farmers growing malting barley. So we want to we want them to be successful and we want to make the best product we can using what they're able to, to, you know, grow on their, their farms. Let's, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the sensory, you know, can you all mention that as you, know, you guys are tasting these as a team, if you're, as you're going through these testing, um, you, know, you have this broader idea, this broader goal for coming up with a, a more English style, you know, flavor, bready, nutty, rather than grassy. Um, you know, as you all are tasting it, what, what's some of the sensory feedback um, when used in this kind of, you know, well, you know, in this IPA context, um, how do your, you know, how, how are your teams describing these flavors again, especially as they, you know, find some, you know, finding some space for difference from some of the other uh, malts that you all make, like a Pilsner or a Turo or a Pale Ale malt? Yeah, again, that's a great question. Uh, I think Ashton could probably answer it more clearer than me, but I'll, I'll give you my, my two cents as well. You know, when our staff is is trying it, myself included, uh, we, we definitely had a, a Pilsner-esque Vienna, if that makes sense. You have that sort of light, uh, sweeter elements that come with a, a Pilsner and some of the more grainier um, uh, elements that you would get from a, a dark malt like a, like a Vienna. We, one thing I've realized as a maltster and, you know, in, in full transparency, I'm not a brewer, so I can only speak from the angle of a maltster. Uh, we typically, uh, have our own internal, what, what it tastes to a maltster. And then there's a brewer may have a completely different experience with, with, what they're tasting and what they're smelling. So we tend to not, uh, as maltsters tell brewers what they should experience. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll give them some ideas on performance. We'll give them some ideas on what we're seeing, what we're trying to, what our goals are. But we always also want to hear back on what, you know, the industry is experiencing with that product. 
But from our perspective at Gambrinus, uh, with our small team there, it was definitely more of the sweeter undertones, the grainier, uh, darker tones that you get from a, a more kiln product. Um, but Ashton, please, please add to that as well. Yeah, I mean, the the flavors that I kind of emphasize on on this is like distinguishing characters kind of fall into the, the cracker, slightly nutty, a little, I'm going to say honey, but not in a, not how we perceive honey a lot of times on the tongue, but how we get honey in the nose, which is a little bit of a fruity, uh, kind of a sweet character. I mean, that we smell so fruity, um, you know, from the pollen that, you know, honey comes from. And really what those, to put it in, in science terms, those were all Maillard reaction products. And when Ken was talking about, you know, changing the moisture and the temperature, you know, even starting in germination through, um, I'm sorry, starting in, um, in steeping through germination and then going into the kiln, that's really what, what what's being influenced are the amount of reducing sugars and free amino nitrogen that goes into the kiln where we pick up these wired reaction products in kilning. If you contrast that to, let's say, a Pilsner malt, especially a European-style Pilsner malt, that the modification is held back. So they typically have low soluble to total uh, protein, or we call that the Colback index, a little bit on the lower side. So those malts will pick up less color and also develop less flavor on the kiln. So this malt, from what Ken was describing, is going to be a, a little bit more modified in kilning, and that's where those those characters come from. And I think I think Blake can probably speak to, you know, to, to those actually show up in beer because. When we're sipping on word or spelling word or chewing on grain, you know, we have to imagine what's it gonna taste like when when these sweet characters that we taste in the grain are turned into alcohol and CO two and beer. Right, let's let's talk about that, Blake. Uh, from your in a sensory perspective, you know, you you brew with Pilsner Malt, you brew with uh, you know standard two row, you've now brewed with an uh, early iteration of this uh, IPA Malt. Um, you know, from your sensory perspective, you know what. Uh, where does it land in this spectrum and how do you describe, you know, what it does within the context of your clean and crisp San Diego style IPA? So I guess when we kind of got approached by BSG to use this malt, I was obviously interested because from a brewer perspective, from my personal perspective, I like to use a variety of different malts from different suppliers, different maltsters, whether it's Pilsner two row, um, some English malt, Golden Promise, Maris Otter. We use all of it depending on what we're trying to achieve. And so when we got approached to use this IPA malt for the first time, it kind of got my gears turning. It's like, what's it going to taste like? I kind of got the general overview of what was trying to be achieved in the malt. And uh, basically from opening up the bags, uh, definitely did have like a nice light character. Um but it had flavor. As a San Diego brewer, we're always looking for a pretty stripped down flavor profile. Um, however, I guess my preference in beer is a little bit different than some of my counterparts in San Diego. I like a little bit more malt character. Um, I'm fine with a, you know, slightly higher terminal gravity, a uh, little bit of body, a little bit of balance. And I felt like from what I got from this malt, a lot of that came through on the final product and it came through even on the, in the process side on the brew house, you know, it was very easy, um, in the louder, it cleared up nicely in the Vorloff. So it was kind of a, 
kind of a cool thing to test out. You never know quite what to expect when you're using a new malt for the first time, but I was excited because we're always trying to achieve something a little bit different with each beer. And at my brewery, we're not married to one malt. We don't have a silo. Uh, we buy every batch that's intended for each beer. So I feel like a lot of the things that they were trying to achieve, I was noticing myself and then having later conversations about what they were trying to achieve. I was like, oh yeah, I tasted a very nice light profile up front, but then there was a noticeable amount of sweetness, malt character, but it wasn't dark. It was just there, you know? And so we've since brewed with it again and added a little bit more layer to it this time. And, uh, it works well, you know, with, with however you kind of want to do it. But, um, when you say added, a little, added more layer, what's that mean? So, uh, on the initial batch, we basically used it as a single malt, um, sided, uh, sigillated malt adjustment just to help with mass pH and stuff like that. Um, kept it very stripped down focused on just the profile of that one malt and then on this subsequent batch uh, we went a little bit deeper and we put in some flaked oats uh, which is an adjunct that you'll see in pretty much all of uh, craft coast west coast ipas Um, and that's going back to what i said earlier about having a preference for a little bit more body a little bit more balanced a little bit more character overall because i feel like with the way that we hop through the kettle and through the dry hop we can kind of get away with having a little bit more sweetness because we're going so heavy you know on those hopping rates you're jamming a ton of hops in there then uh, you need some of some additional uh, flavor and support and body and whatnot right i came from the uh the family of pizza port brewers who's been on the innovation side they were using pilsner malt and ipa before anyone else you know and when I joined that company and started to learn, you know, the ways of the industry, that was our MO. It was like very light, very dry, super hoppy IPA. And uh, I felt like once I started to come into my own and develop my own personality as a brewer, I, I felt like I desired a little bit more balance. And so I pulled my bitterness back a little bit and started adding you know, oats and wheat, maybe something a little bit specialty in there, whether it's like a Carahel or light Munich or, you know, even caramel, um, just something to give it more. And so when malts like this are developed specifically for IPA, it's pretty nice to know that you can just create your normal base platform of what works and then substitute in this new product. And then you're essentially getting an entirely new beer. And that's what excites us, you know, like how many, how many beers do we need? That's raw two row silo malt, you know, and a bag of dextrose, you know, that kind of can get old after a while. Um, or dropping in one or 2% of, of something just to like, you know, tweak, uh, give it a little bit of color difference so that when somebody is lining up their flight of IPAs, they, the, the beers appear differently to them, right? You know, this, I guess it's a little yeah. easier to do it this way. Yeah, it's not just swapping out, you know, X, Y, and Z hop. 
you're now swapping out an entire base malt and that will influence the way that you're going to hop your beer at that point you know um we like to use adjuncts but we're still finding like a terminal gravity of anywhere around two plato down to 1.7 i think is probably our cutoff which is still fairly dry but it's packed in with a little bit of adjunct so you get a little more body it's perceived bigger and a little more full than the beer actually is but that just helps you you know in my opinion that helps us be able to have a more drinkable beer um something that's not cloying on your tongue and overly bitter overly astringent so this ipa malt really helped balance what i like in ipa which is super hoppy you could go aggressive and then you still get a nice undertone of malt character um which I don't want to see go away, even though I'm in the mecca of making that go away, I guess. So, you know, Blake, no, things never truly leave. Like they just move in cycles and they move in different kinds of like things are just, you know, I mean, it, for every action, there's some other, you know, reaction and not, op- op- and we even call it opposite. Like those are just small, small movements. Plus, I mean, everyone, you're all brewers, right? You, you can't do everything the same way the entire time. That'd get really boring. Um, how, what, yeah. Talk to me about fermentation with this. It, you know, generally works in the you know, same kind of uh, you know fermentation approach that you use for your other West Coast IPAs. Yeah, um, pretty much. We found you know for for this beer the whole goal. Uh, I say this beer the the beer that we brewed with BSG that was using the IPA malt. The goal was to use um, entirely bsg provided products so um it actually lined up with what we do consistently where we use a lot of fermentous dry yeast um so we picked up some uso5 from them and uh you know we we ferment just you know as we would any other beer um we like to do 65 degrees and then eventually once we creep towards terminal gravity we'll bump up a little bit you know harvest yeast and then put a big dry hop in um around day seven to day 10 depending on what we're trying to go for from what i've found being a brew pub and being able to constantly brew different kinds of ipa recipes but with the same baseline of fermentation and cellar practice we're getting like completely different beers um just by swapping ingredients and dry hop process so we're still getting, you know, like I mentioned a little bit ago, a two Play-Doh to 1.8, 1.7 Play-Doh terminal. But, you know, this this beer lended a little bit more malt character. It was still dry, but you could taste malt. Some of our other IPAs, bone dry, and all you taste is a crazy hop load. So um, it's fun to see kind of what other things can do, you know, in, in that realm. Are there, you know, brewers in Southern California that I've talked to or California in general, um, some are absolutely thinking about malt use and the way that it relates to hops that they're selecting um, and using in specific beers. You know, when it comes to this IPA malt, are there there, some of those hops that, uh, you know, may have a stronger character where you find having a little bit more character in the malt might help support them versus those hops where like this 
you know, this just needs a, you know, something super clean and straight up a Pilsner. Right. Uh, that's a good question. Cause I feel like the first time we brewed it, I was definitely trying to achieve something a little bit just based off of technical spec that I got and, uh, sensory spec. I was expecting the malt to be a little bit sweeter than it was. So there's a decent bittering addition in there. Um, we use some CO2 extract midway through the kettle and then put in a whirlpool and then another uh, active ferment dry hop. And I feel like, you know, the goal was to achieve using the hops with enough bitterness to block the sweetness that we thought was going to happen and to balance it out. But really, we didn't need to do that as aggressively as we did because the malt itself just provides flavor but it's very dry and crisp as a pilsner would be so you know on the second go around we're like right let's let's pair it up with the hops that we're a little bit more familiar with in west coast ipa that will provide just that classic you know orange dank citrus um so we put you know mosaic and citra in there heavy and then we tried the new uh, anchovy hop, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, like I want to keep using the malt because it's really fun. And I feel like it does lend more towards those quintessential West Coast IPAs, citrus, Simcoe, Mosaic. Uh, you definitely could use it with Nelson Nectar on any of those. Um, and you don't need to really worry about this perceived sweetness that you get when you taste the malt because the beer does dry out and you're left with just a nice balanced malt character. I wouldn't say it's nutty or caramely in any way. It's just present. There is malt present, but the beer is very dry. So the hops can still do the talking leaves you with a color. That's very balanced and nice. You know, um, sometimes Pilsner malt based IPA, you don't have enough going on. It's not interesting enough. Uh, and I think some people try and do that a little bit too much and you're, you almost get left with a beer that's a little bit too dull and one dimensional. And some of my favorite beers are a little bit, you know, I guess I keep saying balance. Balance is what I like. And I think the malt does that well. So. Well, your plug uh, walk, the, the beer you brewed the first time with this malt, to me, it had a real nice golden color. I mean, it had a depth to the, to the, let's say it has a yellow color, but it had kind of a deeper yellow than, to, to me, some uh, really pale pilsners almost, this is kind of a negative description, but kind of reminded me of like dishwater. You know, it's kind of like this, it's clear, but it's got kind of a, a weird, just kind of tint to it. But as that, the plug wall kind of really nice golden, you know, almost like it was shining a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it did kind of move somewhere in between, you know, the Pilsner straw and two robe light yellow gold. Um, I think some of that too comes from, you know, different brew house and different process. Uh, our kettle is, we have a condensing steam stack, so we're not naturally escaping steam vertically out of a stack. We're actually having to pull a vacuum condense that down back into water and then it goes down the drain so we get a very aggressive boil and i think that's why we're always very careful about how much 
malt character we're putting into our grain bill and how much bitterness we're putting into our kettle because we're getting such a rigorous boil. We do, you know, after every batch, we try and add a little bit of water back into the kettle to, to, to dilute down some of those, you know, um, reactions that occur there. And I felt like with that malt, you know, it just came out kind of what you're expecting, just right in that pale gold color without, you know, getting too much over caramelization from the, from the boil. So that is something that we definitely always keep an eye on just cause we, you know, the type of building that we're in, we can't escape our steam stack just straight out the roof. You know, we had to get creative. So it was cool to see that mall on a brew house like that. I felt like overall it was what we wanted. It cleared up, you know, proteins bound well in the whirlpool and we just pulled a nice clean wort into the into the fermenter and then once it hit on tap it was like very very clear and still carried all those great flavors which was super cool um so i felt like overall it was a fun fun trial to be a part of and then i wanted to use it again and so here we are brewing with it even more as a bolster you're saying all the right things I got a question for you though that I, I gotta ask. I'm not familiar with anchovy hops. Can you can you elaborate on anchovy hops a little bit? <laughs> Let's see how to know where to start. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, you know one of my buddies and fellow Pizza Port Lost Abbey family member uh, Steve Burchill that works for Hollingberry. Uh, we were hanging out and talking about hops and whatnot and what we were doing at at craft coast and he's like hey we have this new hop it's called anchovy and i was you should try it so i i thought it was does weird. it taste like anchovies no it doesn't so i <laughs> i of it, course so they let you know, it was it was named by I yeah. think it was uh strumpke brian uh brian stillwater strumpke and uh and then matt from fast fashion right i think it was the two of them that uh right. They came up with the anchovy name, and it was really a test to see could they name it something so horrible that brewers still would have to, uh, <laughs> they'd still want to use it. But Amazing. also, you know, kind of make, I mean, you put that on a on a label, it's made with anchovy hops. I mean, it's gonna you're going to get people to ask some questions, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, like the, uh, shock factor. <laughs> yeah, it definitely took me straight to the internet to figure out why it was called that because, uh, I personally don't think that's the best idea, but the hop on paper is is great, and so far in the beer, it's awesome. So it, of course, I'm glad it didn't leads... taste like fish. No, no, not at all. It smelled rad, um, but yeah, definitely led me to the internet, and I was like, again, another good experiment, new malt, new hop, put them together, and let's let's see what happens, and let's create a new beer and come up with a crazy name for it that nobody understands and put it on top, let people drink it. That's kind of what we do. Sure. Ashton, beyond West Coast IPA, you know, as we've said, like the current trend, Blake, you see these even with, you know, with Hazy IPA, you know, pale, pale, pale is, is very in and of the moment, even in, in uh, Hazy IPA and having some of that malt character, especially with the higher, even higher adjunct loads typically in a Hazy IPA or or something that, uh, you know, where this malt can work very effectively. Um, you know, do you guys see other brewers lean, you know, now interested in this malt or brewing with this malt? 
in the hazy IPA style or or even in other beer styles? Well, we're going to be launching this uh, very, very soon. It actually hasn't launched yet. So we're, we're launching this uh, at the beginning of February. So we're actually just getting ready to launch. But yeah, you know, it, it's like anything else. You name, it, it's even like a beer style. You know, you call something a, a Pilsner and people have a preconceived notion of what it's going to taste like, which I guess it, that kind of is the point of a beer style in a certain sense, but not all, you know, there's different hops that Pilsners use. And, you know, some Pilsners have more body uh, residual sweetness than, than others do. And it's like that with naming a malt, you know, you, you put a, a name on a malt, although this is developed for IPA, it doesn't mean that brewers are limited to how they're going to use it. So we do expect, number one, because it is called IPA malt, that the brewers will use it for, you know, all the different IPAs that, that people brew including hazies, but also, you know, just talking through the, the flavor profile, I'm a, I'm a big loggerhead. And when I think of a malt like this, my mind goes straight to Hellas. You know, I think that a, a really a German Hellas has some of those characters of a little bit, you know, that's, that's what a Hellas is a little bit more than a Pilsner or a, or a Dortmunder export, or even I was recently in Belgium and just really, really enjoyed their, you know, golden strong ales and their triples, uh, which for whatever bizarre reason have kind of fallen out of favor of the United States. But I think that, that this ball will be really nice in a strong uh, golden ale, um, which, you know, you would definitely want to augment that with some sugar. So maybe like, you know, 12 to 14 Play-Doh from malt and then bump up the OG with, with sugar. But yeah, I think there's a lot of things that our customers will be you know, playing around with this. If you're listening to this podcast, please don't put fish in it. Don't, don't put lactose and, you know, frazzleberries or whatever. Uh, we, we do, we do want this beer to be used for beer flavored beer. If I can say that. You can't make them do that, Ashton. People, they can <laughs> brew whatever the hell they want to brew. We're doing what, what we want. We're doing what we want. We'd, we'd like it though, to have, you know, I love it, you know, when Blake's talking about the the beer flavor and the malt flavor. To to me, that that just speaks to me as a as a beer consumer. Well, the fact that it's uh, Gambrinus and that you know Gambrinus, even within the Pilsner space, you know, I've had conversations with brewers about West Coast Pils here on the podcast, and you know the the Firestone folks, you know, Sam Tierney, they've they've talked about that Gambrinus Pilsner malt always finishing pretty low in that like one point seven ish you know, finishing gravity range. So, you know, that Gambrinus has a reputation for drying. Um, but the idea of being able to finish dry and also finish dry with, you know, a malt character, that's an interesting function. And certainly, uh, um, you know, like, I, like you mentioned in that space of Hellas, being able to reach that dryness, but by but still carrying malt character with it does, you know, create some interesting opportunities for it. Yeah, for sure. Jamie, just to add a little bit to that too, one of the goals was to make sure that this malt could be used at a hundred percent inclusion rate as well. So you can use it on its own or like Blake is so elegantly explained with other things as well. And, uh, but the, the bottom line was to make it a base malt that had, um, a different flavor profile than the other base malts on the market. What's the DP on this, Ken? Do you have, um, that number handy? Yeah, I'll dig it up. Cause you know, one thing was, um, you know, there's, there's a, pretty good variability of diastatic power among malts, um, not only in North America, but the world. 
Uh, and our a lot of the malts we produce at RAR are, are kind of middle of the road on DP. They're not. They're definitely not hot, which you know some malts are really really hot, hard to control. So, um, but I, I think that DP is something that really is uh, useful to look at, and especially if you're using adjuncts, you know, keeping an eye on, you know, making sure there's enough enzyme to do what you want to do, but maybe not too much where you can't control your mash. Yeah, and dissect power for IPA, we targeted uh, our similar base malts with a max around uh, 120, so I should say greater than 120, and looking at the most recent off-kiln batches, uh, we're sitting around 130. Oh, so that actually is, that's that's a little bit higher than I, I thought on that. What does that mean? In a, yeah, what does that mean in a practical sense, Ashton? Well, in a practical sense, most most of our malts are in the probably 120 to to 130 range. Um, when I say our malts, uh, RAR and Gambrina, most of our base malts are in that range. When when the diastatic power is, is higher, let's say 150 or greater, the the amount of enzymatic activity, so diastatic power, which is overall measure of, of all the enzymes, you, you end up with a mash that's got so much enzyme that if you want to have a more formidable, I'm sorry, less formidable work, it becomes actually kind of difficult to control. And that's that's one of the uh, reasons why a lot of beers these days are so dry is that uh, all enzymes have gone up, particularly with breeding and also uh, total protein. So what you're saying is that with a proper mash regimen, you actually could, uh, you know, maybe have, get this to finish a little bit sweeter, if that, you know, if that was your goal. Yeah, with a with a DP at 130, that's that's a pretty respectable uh, enzyme complement. You could you could mash, you know, hotter. And thinner would be two ways, you know, hotter, thinner, and shorter would be ways of uh, controlling work fermentability. Ashton, as we were talking uh, a couple weeks ago, planning for this episode, uh, you mentioned to me that you even uh, went out completely on left field in uh, a batch that you brewed and uh, made a Rauk beer with this malt. Yeah, I made actually two Rauk beers with it. I did a, uh, like a, a Smotellus, which I thought turned out really nice. And it was a warm fermented Hellas, so I used uh, Fermentus W3470, the Weinstoffen uh, lager yeast, and I think my basement at that time was about 18 Celsius, which is like, what is that, like 65 or 64 degrees Fahrenheit, which the 3470 actually works quite well at warm temperature. And then I also made a uh, spoked um, uh, Hefeweizen with, with it. So I used the, the IPA base malt with some wheat malt and uh, Weizen yeast and did a smoked Weizen. And it worked just fine with that much more expressive yeast then. Yeah. And of course I was, you know, diluting this malt quite a bit with, with the, in, in the case of the smoked Weizen, not only with the smoked malt, which I used about 20%, but also with the uh, wheat malt. Interesting. Well, you know, we've been talking for a while on this, uh, you know, any thoughts, uh, you know, about uh, opportunities for this, uh, you know, about uh, what you hope to see, Blake, about what you've got, you know, planned next for it and, uh, uh, you know, what the, the future may look like with uh, with IPA malt? Yeah, I guess from my perspective, just in the social media realm, you know, every time I post about something that has to do with it, a couple brewers will hit me up and ask how it is and when they could get it, how they could get it. So there's definitely a there's definitely interest, especially from guys who are making what I consider some of the best uh, IPAs in the country. And uh, for me to get the opportunity to brew with it early, it was super cool because now I think uh, 
it'll probably find its way into my beer house more frequently, especially on some of the some of the beers that are more desired, you know, or more geared towards single malt, single hop application. Because you are getting a diverse malt that does multiple things, you're left with a little bit more, you know, a little bit more on the the meat on the bone for the beer. So I think from a brewer perspective, it's a good idea. We should always be searching out new ingredients and new flavor profiles and new opportunities to try something new. And uh, it's what keeps the industry fresh and it what it's what keeps me personally as a brewer fresh, always, you know, trying new stuff and uh, not just because of a opportunity to brew a beer. It's like that should be the goal of most brewers, in my opinion. Hey, it doesn't always just have to work and you're good with it there's always an opportunity to find something new and you you might end up liking it more than what you're currently doing and then you know then you pivot so yeah i think it's exciting uh just as we always try new hops and new hopping techniques and incognitos and 702s and everything we we can try new ball as well so that's my brewer plug always be learning right yeah yeah ken what yeah, do you always uh, yeah Ken, what do you want? To, what do you hope to see uh, from brewers using uh, you know this uh, this new malt that uh, you all at Gamberness have uh, uh, played such a strong role in creating? Uh, what we hope to see is uh, you know we hope to get feedback from brewers to get a real understanding of what brewers are thinking of the product. Uh, it's in its infancy and and it's going to evolve as we go. So that feedback is paramount to the success. And really looking forward to see what brewers do with the product, what they think of the product, and and give us some some ideas on how we could improve on it. Uh, and most importantly, I think uh, we always enjoy enjoy sampling the the products that the breweries are making with our with our malt. So any brewers out there who uh, do end up using this malt, if you're interested in sending, you know, some samples to us to taste as a team, we're always we're always open to the idea. Close the loop, right? Close the loop. Ashton, uh, obviously, this podcast is out about a week before this hits the market. Um, if people, if, you know, customers, current BSG customers or, uh, not current BSG customers want to learn more about getting some IPA malt into, uh, their own brew houses, um, what should they be doing? Well, the, the best thing to do would be to reach out to their, their sales rep at BSG, which is usually our customer service representative is that, that, that common contact, or if there are people listening to the podcast that are not BSG customers, you can go to our website and put in a, a customer, like a set up a new account. But we're gonna have this at all of our warehouses in the United States. In fact, we've already we've already got malt moved to all the warehouses in the United States and we have it in all the warehouses in Canada. So we're, we're ready to, to roll. Uh, we're, we're really looking forward to people doing exactly what Ken said is, you know, just check it out. Let us know what you think about it. And for us, it's exciting. You know, we, it, it's fun developing a new product and working as a team and, in this case, it was a, a team effort with uh, RAR in Minnesota and, and Ken's team up in Canada. And, and then Blake played a really critical role in, in helping us actually taste a beer that was made with this new malt. And I mean, his beers are great. And that the, the Plugwalk IPA was really stellar. We, we had our company uh, annual sales meeting literally next door to, uh, to Craft Coast. And we, we, I think we, we put a pretty big dent in that tank during the time that we were there and really enjoyed the beer. Well, yeah, that was great. Yeah. 
I guess it's time to uh, to let her rip. Well, thank you all uh, for joining me for this special IPA malt-focused episode of the podcast. Once again, brought to you interruption-free by our friends at BSG. As Ashton said, visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information. If you're a BSG customer, reach out to your rep today. Try out this new malt, or at least get on the list as soon as it starts shipping out there in February. Um, if you're not a customer, then obviously follow all the steps on the website to become one because you don't want to miss out, right? Um, malt's not just great for IPA. Yeah, you know, as you all say on the on the site, cream ale, golden ale, blonde ale, or if you're crazy like Ashton, you can even make a rock beer with it. Um, Blake, Ken, Ashton, thanks to all of you all for uh, sharing your thoughts on IPA malt, this new Gambrinus IPA malt. It's been great talking with all of you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.